This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatley in New York, and we begin with the latest on the crisis in Ukraine. And with each passing day, the suffering continues as the Russians maintain their bombardment. CNN teams on the ground in Kiev reporting the sound of explosions and in Lviv, the sound of air raid sirens. Hear that? We understand that siren was the all-clear signal. Elsewhere in Lviv, a fuel depot ablaze on Saturday after being targeted by a Russian cruise missile. And this video showing the city of Kharkiv in ruins. An advisor to President Zelensky accusing Vladimir Putin of trying to wipe Ukraine, quote, off the face of the earth. Ahead of talks this week in Istanbul, President Zelensky says Ukraine is ready to accept neutral, non-nuclear status under certain conditions. Our priorities in the negotiations are known. Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity are beyond doubt. Effective security guarantees for our state are mandatory. Our goal is obvious, peace and the restoration of normal life in our native state as soon as possible. Now, Ukraine's military intelligence chief says that he believes Vladimir Putin is seeking to split Ukraine into two, using the post-war division between North and South Korea as his model. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, good to have you with us. I think for most people looking at the map, they'll long have understood this idea of perhaps of a corridor along the south of the country into the east, so connecting Crimea with the Donbass region. If you combine that potential view with what we've heard from President Zelensky over the last day or two. Where do you think that leaves potential negotiations in Turkey this week? I think both sides are still a long way apart. What we're hearing from President Zelensky represents in many ways the pressure that he's under to, from, uh, from NATO, from the United States, from the European Union to be able to continue to get the weapons supplies that he needs to fight Russia. Uh, and, and these nations are all committed to helping support him in one way or another, particularly with defensive weapons rather than the big weapons he wants. So he's sort of stuck. He, he certainly doesn't have the might to uh, flush the Russian army out of Ukraine. So he does need to look to the diplomatic path, and that's partly why the, you know, the support that he's getting is constructed in that way. The, the nations that support Ukraine don't want to see an escalation in the fighting. So what we're hearing him say is that he is willing for Ukraine to become neutral as long as it has security guarantees. And there he's looking to the West for those security guarantees. But here's the big hurdle. And this is why I say we're not near, because the big hurdle in all of this is that he would want this to come about, this new position for Ukraine, to come about through popular support, through a referendum. But the conditions, he says, for that referendum are that Russia must withdraw its forces back to pre-war phase, back to pre the 24th of February, which means there are no Russian forces inside Ukraine. And when you add that into that land corridor that we hear the minister um, of intelligence there in Ukraine speaking about, not just the land grab by Russia, but Russia implementing in the South sort of parallel leadership's administration and insisting, according to the minister in Ukraine, that citizens inside Ukraine are now forced to use the Russian currency, not Ukrainian currency. 
That's uh, how the, the, the leadership in Kyiv sees Russia at the moment, as trying to separate North and South, like, like Korea. And they're saying, no, uh, we're ready to move forward, but you've got to get your troops out and relinquish that kind of control. This is why I think we're a distance apart, or the two sides are a distance apart at the moment, Julia. Yeah, none of it seems uh, comparable and compatible with, with Russian intentions, at least at this stage. I think also what we have to discuss as well, and Nick, to get your sense and, and opinion on this, is the fact that President Zelensky was talking to Russian journalists, those that have been forced to close down or to leave, uh, to stop doing what they were trying to achieve in, in Russia. How important is that in light, particularly of what President Biden said over the weekend? And, and then obviously the White House and Biden clarified it too. This man cannot remain in power. They're saying, look, they, they're not pushing for regime change. But there is a sense that there's messaging attempts being made to the Russian people themselves. They're hugely important. And, no more, and the people that they're most important to are the Ukrainian leadership, because the way to try to slow down the Russian uh, offensive is to build support in Russia against it. And that's near impossible because Russia is shutting down not just all or almost all of its independent media and another independent media channel uh, was uh, given its sort of shutdown orders today in Russia as well. Russia is also shutting down uh, some uh, international media broadcasts uh, and uh, 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 and, and, and production inside of Russia. So for Zelensky to speak to independent Russian independent media, many of whom are now located outside of Russia, it's a way to try to reach around the Kremlin's propaganda and get to that maybe one quarter of the population who who, who want that information, who don't want the government propaganda, uh, and who want to hear from the Ukrainian leadership about their real position and not what the Kremlin's telling them. So that's important. And, and when it comes to what President Biden has said about, uh, about President Putin, and that's sort of been brought back by, uh, by various U.S. officials, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, the most recent President Biden, walked it back as well. Um, this sort of plays into what we've heard from the French President Emmanuel Macron saying, look, I, I wouldn't use that sort of language because I'm still trying to talk to President Putin. And Macron at the moment has probably had more phone calls than any other European leader um, to President Putin and President Zelensky and is currently working on an effort to try to get civilians and an estimated as many as 150,000 out of the besieged city of Mariupol in the south of Ukraine. So the, President Macron is sort of trying not to find a grand fix for the whole war, but at the moment trying to find medium term and, and immediate solutions for the humanitarian suffering that's underway. And for that reason, he says he, wasn't, he wouldn't use the language that President Biden used because that just escalates tensions and, and, and potentially escalates the war as well. Mm. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, the southeastern city of Zaporizhia is now under an emergency curfew as officials closely monitor the Russian troops' movements. As Ivan Watson reports. This is a checkpoint at the entrance to the eastern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia. But this is an unusual day. The government has imposed a citywide daytime curfew. Traffic is not being allowed in or out and we're getting a look with the local police force at how they're enforcing this emergency curfew. I'm getting a tour of the city with two local police inspectors. We have passed 
many deployed Ukrainian soldiers. We cannot show them or film them for their safety, uh, given that there is a full-fledged war taking place in this country. What is striking about this daytime curfew is that a city of nearly a million inhabitants is now a complete ghost town. My name is Roman, Panchenko Roman. I'm Ukrainian. I served in police for already six years. I like my work. I'm proud of my work. In the territory of the city, only policemen and some military men. Every car which goes to the city is checked. The police say it's easier to maintain security and search for suspected Russian collaborators when the city is locked down. How far away is the Russian army right now from where we are? Russian army is uh, several fronts, but the nearest place where, where Russian tanks are dislocated is maybe 30 kilometers from this place. A half hour by car? Mm, yes, yes, you're, you're right. Would you defend Zaporizhia if the Russian army comes here? I mean, you're not, you're not soldiers, you're police. Would you fight? I'm a man. I'm a man. I am a Ukrainian man. As for me, it's very ashamed for a man not to protect his family, not to protect his house, not to protect his life. The people here know what happened to other Ukrainian cities and towns that have been attacked by the Russian military. They don't want that to happen here, but they say if it does, they're ready. A humanitarian catastrophe. That's how Ukraine's president is describing the situation in Mariupol following the recent onslaught of the city. These are new images of the utter devastation there. Many who took shelter in basements during the Russian bombardment are returning to find their homes destroyed. I've lived here since my birth, my husband as well. We got married here and had babies. What now? What is left for us? I don't want to go anywhere from Mariupol, but there's nowhere to live here. It comes on top of reports of Russian strikes hitting the west of Ukraine, previously considered a relative safe haven. Phil Black is in Lviv on the west of the country for us. Phil, good to have you with us. Just give us a sense of what the latest is there. So, Julie, there were more cruise missile strikes across the country last night, reported from different locations. Crucially, at least one of them was knocking out yet another fuel storage area. This is in the Volyn region, uh, only a relatively short distance northeast of where I am uh, in Lviv. Those cruise missiles, we are told, were fired from across uh, the border from Belarus. It's a pattern now that we've been seeing for some days here, experienced here in Lviv on Saturday when cruise missiles fired from the Black Sea, naval vessels there, knocked out a fuel storage site here in the centre of Lviv. This has also happened in other parts of the country over recent days, near Mykolaiv, near, near Kiev. It is a, a clear pattern, a clear tactic by Russia to knock out these uh, logistical and support sites. They've also been at attacking weapon storage areas. The hope Russia has here is that by impacting fuel supplies, weapon supplies, you will impact the ability of Ukraine to maintain its defense. Meanwhile, some video has emerged from what appears to be the far east of the country, near the Kharkiv region, which seems to show Ukrainian soldiers 
mistreating, abusing, uh, even shooting in a non-lethal way, uh, captured Russian soldiers. Russian soldiers are seen being shot in the leg. Others are being see are seen on the floor or on the ground uh, with serious leg injuries, implying that they've also experienced the same punishment. They're also abused, and uh, both physically and verbally, uh, in other ways. The Ukrainian government has acknowledged this video exists and advised it to the government, says this is serious, we will investigate it. This is not how our soldiers uh, are supposed to behave, if it is proven to be true while the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense uh, says that uh, these sorts of videos, these sorts of moments are being staged by Russia uh, as part of its propaganda war. Julia. And we'll continue to follow that story in particular too. For Black, thank you so much for that report there. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Shanghai has launched a two-phase lockdown to try to contain a growing COVID outbreak. Starting today, 11 million residents in the east must remain at home and get tested. On Friday, the lockdown will be extended to the west to cover an additional 14 million people. As Stephen Jiang reports. This lockdown order came after days of confusion and chaos on the streets, but also online about what the authorities would do to Shanghai, which is experiencing its biggest surge of COVID cases since the pandemic began. Now, for days, officials had denied there would be a citywide lockdown, with police even launching investigations against so-called rumor mongers about the city's imminent closure. When you look at the number, more than 16,000 cases since March, a huge deal for China and with even a suspicion about this number being underreported. But when you dive a bit deeper, the overwhelming majority of these cases have been asymptomatic, which according to most experts would not require much hospital care. So for a long time, up to uh, this latest wave of cases, Shanghai had prided itself on its less disruptive approach to COVID containment. The city had never undergone citywide mass testings and its uh, quarantine measures were often considered less restrictive compared to the rest of the country. So there was actually a lot of hope this Shanghai model would be adopted by the rest of the country, more lenient, more targeted approach, and eventually leading to the country to be reopened to the rest of the world. But instead, we are seeing uh, now, Shanghai authorities adopting uh, some of the very harsh measures we had previously only seen in other cities, uh, really confining millions of residents to their homes, shutting down a large portion of the city's public transportation, including the world's biggest metro system, and of course, uh, a lot of uh, concerns and even agony about the increasingly strained healthcare system, with a lot of people seeking medical attention for non-COVID-related causes being turned away, leading to at least one death of a local nurse because of this. And then, of course, there were a lot of concerns about a city's uh, elderly population because Shanghai does have the oldest population among all major Chinese cities. And that's the segment of the population that has been under vaccinated. All of this really leading to a lot of panic buying of, uh, stores, at takeout restaurants, and also uh, a growing sense of uh, fatigue, frustration, or even anger really bursting online. But even though all of this is taking place in Shanghai, the decision, of course, is being made here in Beijing. And at least for now, the leadership is showing no sign of uh, trying to change course to their zero COVID policy because it's been working for them politically, not to mention their top priority right now is this Communist Party National Congress to be held later this year. It seems at least for now, they're not going to tolerate the scenario of COVID cases raging across China as President Xi Jinping is expected to take his third term in office later this year. Stephen Jiang, CNN, Beijing.
Okay, coming up, the cost of war. The Ukrainian finance minister will join us to discuss the government's response and the scale of damage to the country's economy. Plus, the path to energy independence, how Europe's planning to reduce its reliance on Russian oil and gas. All coming up. Stay with us. On top of the human suffering caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the economic cost is mounting too. An estimated 30% of the country's economy is incapacitated currently, while at the same time Ukraine operates or continues to operate on a war footing, paying salaries and fulfilling its payment obligations. Money is coming in. Auctions of so-called war bonds have taken place. While the United States is donating $1 billion in humanitarian aid, the International Monetary Fund has approved $1.4 billion in emergency financing, and the EU is sending $500 million worth of military aid too. Still, it's a drop in the ocean compared to an estimated hundreds of billions of dollars in losses that the country may end up facing. Sergei Marchenko is the Ukrainian finance minister, and he joins us now. Finance minister, good to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Let's just begin by explaining a third of the country, an estimated 30% of the country incapacitated. Just give us a sense of of what that means. Um, Thank you very much for the ability to talk with you, with your auditorium. Uh, I want to tell you that uh, despite all the war which we see right now, our government is still functioning. We ensure all fulfillment of our needs and state needs. We paid uh, salaries, pensions and other protected uh, expenditures. You mentioned uh, how much we have lost as a country. Uh, we see that uh, our pre- preliminary estimation is about 30% based on data from uh, tax- taxation. But it could be uh, more by damage because war is still continuing in our country and uh, uh, more broader or a more uh, correct estimation of our losses we can tell only after some period of time. Yeah, I understand it's impossible, nearly impossible to, to gauge what you're seeing at this moment, I'm sure. Do you have any sense of, of how many people in the country are currently reliant on humanitarian aid at the same time? Yes, we have uh, data which uh, we use uh, government support tool. We paid uh, 200, 200 uh, US dollars for every person who uh, can't uh, live in that territory, who lost his job. Our preliminary estimation is also a little bit uh, around uh, 3 million people who lost their job and it could be people who, who have a position, occupied position in a business or have own business. And um, it's more than 3 million people now is a refugee and lived in a European country tempor- temporary and it's also uh, great damage for our economy. I mean, in the short term, as you've said, you're still meeting your commitments, you're trying to pay pensions, you have soldiers to pay. You're issuing what's called war bonds, but it's very expensive and it's short-term debt. And that means it needs to be paid back quickly. How long can you continue to do this, to to operate like this? You know, for us, the better uh, scenario is to end the war as quickly as possible because... Uh, it, uh, it's damaging our economy, it's 
war killing our people, civilians, etc. So for us, the most uh, uh, possible and good scenario is to end this war as fast as possible. However, we want and we want to be able to save our country, to protect our people. That's why we calculated our current budget uh, forecast for around two or three months period of time and we have losses in our revenues. That's why the only way to um, to fulfill this fiscal gap is to borrow. So our instrument war bond is uh, one of the instruments. Another instrument is uh, international financial organization and con concessional financial from different countries. So we are, you mentioned this in your comments. So we received several three billion US dollars already and negotiated around six billion US dollars. So uh, and of course it's not enough. It's not enough. So now we are trying to uh, create special vehicle for Ukraine together with IMF, together with Ministry of Finance of Canada, Christian Freeland, and to al allocate uh, part of SDR which uh, was uh, relocated for different countries in 2021 for Ukraine especially. So countries like um, Canada, mm -hmm. uh, United Kingdom, uh, Germany is uh, looking closely at this instrument. Yeah, and at the same time as you're trying to pay wages and salaries and keep the economy together, I know you've said you're committed to making debt and interest payments in order to, to keep market access. Um, your economy ministry has estimated that the cost in its entirety to the economy could be more than $500 billion, $565 billion to, to be specific. Minister, is that correct? Could it be that big? It's a, uh, it's a way we are talking about what we're estimating. We're estimating the loss of possible GDP because uh, we expected this year GDP growth more than 3%. So uh, it's a loss of GDP growth. So And uh, also it's about uh, a loss of infrastructure. So sh we should uh, recover our infrastructure to uh, And uh, um, I think that uh, the true figures uh, would be uh, clear only after the war. But uh, preliminary estimation of our Ministry of Economy is true because it's also based on different uh, methodologies how to calculate these uh, losses. So they use um, different uh, ways on how to calculate it. So it could be very true figures. Wow. I mean, just so my audience understands, your, your GDP in 2020, according to the World Bank, was $155 billion, just to put it into perspective of, of the loss we're talking about. Um, Ukraine's top intelligence chief suggested that Russia's ambitions are to split the country, sort of the north and the south, that Russia will try and create a corridor between Crimea and the Donbass region. Minister, if we keep the politics out of it, and I know that's difficult, what would that mean to the economy? Can Ukraine accept that loss of the country? Surely it would mean too great a level of devastation for the economy, never mind other losses. You know, we will not accept any uh, losses, any meters of our countries. 
So we will fight against any possible uh, scenario which moves us towards this. So our idea is to safeguard and protect all our countries in the borders before the 24th of February. So, uh, and it's not possible even to mention that we can live without some part of our territory because of it's um, it's about our economy, it's about our people, it's about our logistics. Now we our harbor in Odessa region is blocked, so we need to find another way how to transfer commodities towards um, towards Europe and other countries, and uh, that's why for us it's important to to fight against aggressor till the end, to to till the last meter of our territory will be uh, safe and uh, independent. Minister, President Biden said in Poland over the weekend, that man, and he meant Vladimir Putin, cannot remain in power. And the White House has said, and President Biden himself has said, they were not pushing for regime change in Russia. Where does the Ukrainian government stand? Do you believe that Putin should no longer be in power in Russia? I don't uh, want to talk about this bloody Putin's regime because for us it's important that uh, every Russian citizen suffer and uh, and that's why sanctions is very important in this particular matter. And uh, our government and our president uh, try to, to do everything is possible that every uh, Russian citizen to understand that the way they support their power is the wrong way, so they should uh, think about this, because it's not their country which is in the blood and which is in the shelter, and uh, it's our country which lost their people, civilians, children, that's why and every additional sanction towards Russia will help us to move this uh, power around and Um, peace conditions with other people in Russia. Minister, do you think enough has been done in terms of sanctions to force the Russian government to the negotiating table? There are talks once again this week. How hopeful are you? And what more would you like to see in terms of sanctions if the answer to that question is no? Of course, it's it's not enough because a lot of uh, business businesses operating in, in Russia, still operating in Russia. They pay taxes, they support the Russian army using this mean, if you mean, understand what I mean. And that's why for us it's important that all possible uh, foreign investors move on from Russia and uh, to make the decision either to support bloody aggressor or to support democratic uh, uh, civilian world. That's why we also uh, have our role in this particular scenario. We are uh, closely cooperating with uh, huge international banks, and we see that right now uh, a lot of um, international banks uh, moving from from Russia, and uh, they don't want to operate in uh, Russia territory. And also, uh, for example, uh, huge uh, the largest tobacco companies like uh, Philip Morris, British. American Tobacco, Japan Tobacco International also 
are looking closely to close their operation in Russia and not pay tax taxes in uh, Russia. You've thrown some business names out there and we will continue to mention that they continue to operate in Russia, sir. Stay safe and thank you once again for your time today. We're thinking of you. Sergei Machenko, Ukrainian finance minister, sir, thank you. Okay, still to come. The European Union is the biggest consumer of natural gas from Russia. Now it plans to slash Russian imports. We speak to the EU's chief climate policy guru about its plans next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Globalization under pressure once again. The pandemic and trade war have led to a 5.3% shrinkage in trade in 2020. That, according to the World Trade Organization. Add now Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Zane Asher spoke to the, an economist with the World Bank from the DP World Pavilion at Dubai Expo 2020, who explained why farms are key to boosting trade. So the past few years, we've seen a setback in trade, in global trade, everything from the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, supply chain issues, the US-China trade war as well, more recently higher oil prices. What can governments around the world do to ensure that their economies become much more resilient to external shocks? One um, sort of easy gateway is probably to increase the resilience and adaptability of farms in this global trading landscape. And it's important to have a multi-pronged approach with all of this because, of course, yes, the goal is to increase global trade uh, and investment. But at the same time, you also have to think about sustainability and inclusivity as well. How do you do both? I think there are two ways to look at it. There's a role for the policymakers, there's a role for international organizations, and then there's a role for the private sector in itself. Now, when you look at the role for the international organizations um, in trying to negotiate sort of these trade and sustainability rules, they need to amp up and increase the, the amount of ambition um, that they currently have. In today's trading landscape, right, when you think about all of the different initiatives, both from the private sector and the public sector, um, when you think about uh, carbon mitigation targets by different multinational corporations um, or um, different schemes such as the EU Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, you see that all consumers are pushing um, you know, the governments to act upon the sustainability agenda by putting in place some of these policies. And how are farms going to trade? Um, they, they really need to show that they have low carbon intensities in their production processes. But once you have that good infra carbon traceability infrastructure, um, farms are able to trade much better in a more sustainable way and be able to showcase that they indeed actually have a, a carbon competitive advantage. And there's also the role of, where, the, the, of developing countries, right? Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes we always think that um, the developing countries probably do not have such a huge role to play. But what we're increasingly seeing, if you look at the growth rates of carbon emissions over the past um, 10 years or so, you'll see that actually the smaller countries are carbonizing at a much faster rate than the developed world. Adaptation is critical for smaller countries, but so is um, mitigation and decarbonization because that sort of gives you that good base for a green growth um, that creates the good jobs for the future and creates, um, you know, competitiveness that is useful for trading in um, today's trading landscape. Stay with CNN. We'll be back after this. 
powerful missile strike in the western city of Lviv over the weekend. The city has not seen the worst of the war, which only made it more stunning to see people packing the streets not long after, as John Berman reports. Defiance comes in many sizes, in many shapes, in many sounds. And sometimes it's not about being anything other than just being. You're not going to stay inside. Yes, because our child wants to breathe fresh air. We want to breathe fresh air. And we don't want to spend such a beautiful day inside. Even though not 24 hours before, the city was a target of a Russian missile attack. You can see the smoke still rising. Again, look at those flames. They're just roaring. You're out walking on the streets enjoying the day. Why? Because I think any person get used to such sounds, to, uh, get, trying to get rid of fear and uh, to live its usual life. I think so. So I'm here because I believe in my, uh, uh, my army. Roman, a street musician, is donating half his proceeds to Ukrainian soldiers. They should see that they cannot defeat our people. We are not scared. I have a friend in Mariupol and he captured a Russian soldier. And they asked this officer, why are you doing such things with our cities? And he answered, because you need to be afraid of the Russian army. Why are you wearing wings? Because this is a symbol of unity for Ukraine, freedom and independence. Independence, Ukraine. Out here on the streets, we're really not far from where these missiles hit. It's about a mile and a half from here, just past that TV tower you see there in the distance. For many, even the majority we spoke with, one reason they're relatively unfazed is because they've seen worse. Olena came here from the devastated Kharkiv. I never thought that I can get used to such things. And when I saw it, it was far away. The smoke is far away. I wasn't scared. Feeling is familiar for us because we are coming from Kyiv and we know how explosions sound. Ludmila and Arina are here from the hard-hit Sumy region. They have survived so much. Even though there could be explosions, we will go outside because we want to show that we are strong, we are not scared. We will fight for our land and we will not give any centimeters of land territory to invaders. Can you show me your flag? It's her birthday today. It's your birthday today? Her sixth birthday, one she will never forget. Thankfully, not for the bombs, but for the Barbie. And one more thing. She got a puppet, she told me. A puppet that is all hers like this day for the Ukrainians that no one can take away. Ah, we're back after this. Stay with us. Earlier this month, the European Union announced an ambitious goal, ending its reliance on Russian energy imports. The EU is the biggest consumer of natural gas from Russia. Just for context, the bloc depends on Russia for around 40% of its natural gas, nearly 30% of its oil imports, and almost half of its coal imports. 
The EU plans to slash imports of Russian gas by two-thirds before the end of the year this year and eliminate its dependency on all Russian energy imports by 2027. Here to discuss, Franz Timmermans. He's the Executive Vice President for the European Green Deal. Sir, always great to have you on the show. I know you believe overall that the European Union can do this more quickly, but even if we just talk about the plans for this year, it's hugely ambitious and there are plenty of sceptics. I can understand that because it's extremely complicated to do what we need to do. But um, I think we can do it. I think we can pull it off. We can reduce our gas imports from Russia by two thirds. Uh, the first indication that we're well on the way is the agreement uh, between President von der Leyen and President Biden for uh, 15 uh, BCM uh, LNG from the United States. Um, so uh, if we then also uh, are more quicker in introducing uh, renewables and if we can also do a lot more on uh, biogas, then I think we can we can achieve our goals. And we need to because we don't want to be sending uh, money to Putin so that he can finance his war. There's two angles there. There's the investment that you often discuss in renewables, which will foster greater independence more swiftly if it can be done. There's also, to your point, the reliance on others to provide things like LNG. And the United States, as you mentioned, is, is stepping up. Where else is it going to come from, particularly if under your proposals, the hope is to have underground gas storage up to 90 percent capacity by the 1st of October this year? Who else can help? Where is it going to come from? Well, I think we, we have uh, multiple sources, potentially. Uh, Azerbaijan is one of them. Uh, Qatar is the other one. Uh, we'll be talking to Saudi Arabia as well. We'll be talking to Morocco, to Egypt, to Algeria. We're, we're going to try and diversify as quickly as we can. Some of it will come through pipelines. Other will be LNG. And we need to also increase our capacity to receive LNG and defrost LNG at our borders. And Germany, uh, among other countries, is working on this. So, yeah, we've got a lot of things we need to do, but I think it, the most important thing is that we quickly reduce our dependence on, on Russian gas. And the price, the relative price, even compared to last year, how much more is it going to cost to source uh, alternatives from these countries that, that you mentioned? Do you have a sense? Have you modelled anything? Because obviously that then impacts the consumer. Well, I think the, be the best thing we can do for the consumer is to do collective buy-in to make sure that we operate on behalf of the whole EU that would get us the best deal probably uh, in negotiating uh, the best price but you know we talk about price and of course um, the burden on the shoulders of our citizens is huge now with the energy prices where where they are uh, but I was just following um, the news you brought from from Ukraine mm. I mean this burden is incomparable to the horrors that the Ukrainians have to go through, standing up for our values, standing up for democracy, so that we are put, being put under, under stress is incomparable to the stress they're being put under. And I think, I think we should take that responsibility. And I think we should also take the responsibility in defending this uh, to our citizens and saying, look, if we really want to diversify energy resourcing, if we really want prices to go down, we have to reduce our dependence on Russian gas and we have to move much quicker on renewables because renewables are cheap. I think the costs are relative to your point and we have to accept that. You often talk about the political will to do what's required here. Do you think this recognition, whether it's across European governments, whether it's across European citizens, that actually Europe is the weak link in, in efforts to prevent further bloodshed in Ukraine because of the reliance on Russian energy and, and the funds that are provided for it? Well, I, I don't think we're the weak link. I think, I think what Europe has shown is incredible solidarity 
uh, with Ukrainian uh, people and also incredible internal cohesion. I've never seen Europe as united as it is today. And I've never seen our transatlantic bond stronger in the last uh, two decades uh, as I've seen it today. So there's a lot we can build on. But I, I, I do believe we have to take the case to our citizens and say, look, the people in Ukraine are suffering. They are suffering because they're standing up for the things we believe in, for our values, for our common future. And we should be able to, to muster enough courage to stand up to Putin and to, to say, okay, even if it's a burden on us, we will do this. But at the end of the day, you know, with sanctions, you have to make sure the guy you apply them on suffers more than you yourself. And that's that's a very difficult call for all governments to make. But one thing I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of, we will go all the way in making sure we support the Ukrainians as much as we can to make sure that they can retain their independence, retain their liberty and, and regain a peaceful country. The Russians have suggested what is paid for now by unfriendly nations, quote, should be paid for in rubles. The German economy minister, I believe, called it called it blackmail. How would the commission view such payments? I think the payments uh, will be done, as always, in international currency, um, and that will not change. Do you think we need a campaign at the nation state level? Use less energy, turn the lights off, wear an extra jumper, simply use less energy and be more efficient. And actually, that will will also play a huge role in this as well, at least in the short term. Well, frankly, I believe many of our citizens are well ahead of us. They're already doing this uh, across the European Union. And we need to stimulate that. I agree with you. We need to stimulate that as much as we can. But we also need to recognize that not all citizens can do that. We need to pay more attention to the issue of energy poverty, to support people who are in a precarious position, to make sure they don't you know, suffer in the cold or, or suffer because they can't um, uh, heat their uh, um, uh, homes. Um, and at the same time, those who can afford to uh, turn down the temperature should do it or drive a bit less or work a bit more at home. It has a huge impact on our energy consumption. You know, one degree less temperature in our homes is 10 BCM less Russian gas. Yeah. And that's actually, I think, how people need to start thinking about it, just in terms of a behavior on a daily, on an hourly basis. Um, I want to ask you about the comments that were made by President Biden over the weekend when he said um, that man, Putin, cannot remain in power. Obviously, it's been walked back by the White House. Joe Biden said he wasn't pushing for for regime change either. How do you view those comments and and where, again, does the commission stand? Well, first of all, I I I was I was impressed by by the feeling that President Biden Mm. put in his, his speech in Poland. and I was impressed by by his show of solidarity with Ukrainian people. And, and that, I mean, that just testifies how strong the transatlantic bond is. Uh, but of course, we're, we're not about regime change. Nowhere, uh, not in Russia, not anywhere else. The only ones who will decide about who rules Russia is the Russian people. Uh, and I hope they make a wise choice because they're not being ruled very well. and They're being harmed in such a terrible way by Putin. And I hope they draw the right conclusions from this. But that's not for us to decide. That's for the Russians themselves to decide. You understand the complexities of this situation better than most. You worked as a Russian interpreter. I know you were in Ukraine during the revolution, the Maidan revolution in in 2014. Um, What do you see, given the complexities on the Russian side as well, with control in the media? What is the best way to get through to, to the Russian people and help them understand the realities 
of the situation? Because in some way, I feel like that's also who President Biden was was trying to speak to or message to. Well, frankly, frankly, I believe that the ones I put my hope on are the mothers, the mothers who are now seeing that their sons are, are dying in Ukraine for 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 something that's so horrible as an invasion of a of a peaceful country. Um, they're, they're, they're dying in, in land that is seen as friendly land, as, as, as a land that they are very much um, familiar with and, and they feel at home in Ukraine. And their sons, their husbands, their brothers, um, they're dying there. And, and, and the mothers, I think, will not stand for that. And I think with all the might of the propaganda they have, with all the control of the media, they can't keep that information away from the Russian people, not long term, not with these numbers. So I hope that the mothers and, and you know, uh, this is a very tightly controlled society. This is a very uh, uh, strongly um, uh, controlled society and people are disappearing to prisons if they if they disagree right. or if they even even showing a white sheet of paper can get you arrested. Uh, but they cannot stand up to the mothers of Russia. And I hope they will make their voices heard even more. And I hope this will, will draw, will help those around Putin to draw, draw the right conclusions and to make sure that they change course. Always thought-provoking. Sir, great to have you on the show. Franz Timmermans, Executive yeah. Vice President for the European Green Deal. Sir, thank you for your time. You. And that's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.